You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho and George Cedarquist. All right, this week we go inside the huddle with composer Melissa Dunphy to excavate 250 years of Philadelphia history, discovering broken pottery, the music of ghosts, and why cricket isn't actually a boring sport. Plus, PJ files a field report from Carnegie Hall's song studio in Listener Mailbag. And in the two-minute drill, you know that meme? The one with the dog in the house on fire saying, this is fine? Maybe don't send that one to Peter Gelb right now. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com. Or just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and a number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. And without further ado, it's just me and you right now, Oliver. And it's been a while since it's just been the two of us just hanging out, a couple of bros in the hot tub, you know, just uh, <laughs> making a podcast together. Well, if you're like me, uh, you were missing your favorite podcast during the long span between Christmas and New Year's and everybody getting ramped back up to get it back to the regular flow. And uh, I think that we're the opposite. Like we we gave you a lot of content right at the beginning of, of the year. You're and now welcome. we're just, we're having just a kind of a more gentle podcast this week since we know you are recovering from the Australian Open and <laughs> getting, getting ready to, uh, you know, uh, immerse yourself in Super Bowl, uh, uh, what is this? It's like psychosis? No, Super Bowl mania? <laughs> Super Bowl? <laughs> Super Bowl psychosis is pretty yeah. good. Yeah, but speaking of Australian Open, that was a crazy result. Uh, first, we'll start with uh, Arya Sabalenko taking out American Coco Golf in a nail-biter semifinal. Then she decisively beat the 20-year-old Chinese Zheng Chiven uh, in the finals. But the big story is that Yannick Sinner, the Italian, the humble young Italian, uh, won from two sets down in a five-set match against Daniel Medvedev in the finals. And on the way to beating Daniel Medvedev, took out, or I should say dethroned Novak Djokovic in a jaw-dropping display of dominance in the semifinals. If you didn't know, Djokovic was going for his 11th Australian Open title yeah. and his 25th Grand Slam. And everybody assumed that he would actually get it. But it was something else to see Yannick Sinner demolish Novak Djokovic. And Djokovic, you know, is talking a little bit about retirement. Not really him, but people were murmuring about retirement based on his performance. <laughs> I just think he was having a bad day. I think that it's, it's just the first slam of the year. But Djokovic is usually in great form uh, for the first uh, Open, for the first slam of the year. So it was a bit of a surprise. And I guess we should fess up that um, our uh, picks for the Super Bowl were Kansas City and Detroit. Well, it turns out it'll be the Chiefs and the 49ers uh, this <laughs> was it this Sunday or is it next? It's Sunday the 11th. So uh, I guess well, we, we need the expertise of George or Ashley to uh, help us sort this one out. But if you picked Detroit on our uh, on our half on our based on our recommendations. I'm so sorry. 
Well, usually it's infallible, but you know, just like uh, just like Djokovic, you know, sometimes you just have a bad day, you know. That, yeah, we're that's we're betting okay. we're betting nine hundred right now. I don't know how many times we've done it. <laughs> I don't know. What the well, I mean, is, maybe but. maybe there'll be a, a random disqualification or something that will be completely unprecedented. But um, and I, then the trade will be allowed back in, and then they'll win. <laughs> that's how it works, right? I believe it's, in us. I believe yeah, in football. It's like the. Uh, the presidential election, like uh, Donald Trump will be disqualified from the ballot. So, Ah, the dream. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Born in Australia and raised in an immigrant family, Melissa Dunphy herself immigrated to the United States in 2003 and has since become an award-winning and acclaimed composer specializing in vocal, political, and theatrical music. She's the recipient of a Opera America Discovery Grant for a show we're going to talk about shortly, and lives in Philadelphia with her husband, the owners and developers of the Hannah Callowhill Stage, which is a new performance venue, and the co-hosts of the popular podcast, The Bog House. Melissa, thank you so much for being on the show with us this week. Pleasure to be here from uh, sunny-ish Philadelphia. There we go. It's always sunny in Philadelphia, right? That's what they say. Yeah. Uh, just let's just get the the hard stuff out of the way. Cricket is it not the world's most boring sport? Uh, if you think an excuse to drink for five days straight is boring, then I don't know what culture you belong to, but it's not a hardy working class uh western culture right no it, cricket okay so i have a thing where i explain cricket to americans because americans uh, have posed this question to me many times um i'm an australian as you may or may not be able to tell from my accent i am not a native philadelphian um and uh the way i always explain cricket is it is a sport that harkens back basically to feudalism Right. So, you know, the point of cricket is not to score runs and and, you know, like get the highest point count. The point of cricket is you are the king of a castle and you have to protect your castle. Your castle is, you know, the stumps and you are the knight in front of your castle hitting away the cannonballs that are coming from your castle. That is the point. So it's like, you know, Americans are sort of, you know, very, I don't know, I want to say like capitalist, like you want to see the counter go up and that means you're successful. No, 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 no. In cricket, you are already the king. And the point is you defend your castle. So you can sit there and just bat all of those balls away. And if you don't score a dang thing, you're still successful because your castle is intact. So like once you sort of understand that, and then of course, from the spectator perspective, a full cricket test match is five oh, days geez. long. Yeah. Five yeah. days long. <laughs> and that is an excuse to go to a game for five days straight. People take weeks off work to go to a game and just get completely blackout drunk for five days. Amazing. Let's get you to write the, the five-day opera that you just you watch it for five days. I feel like there are people who've already done something, stuff like that. Like, it sounds like something Stockhausen would do, right? <laughs> just like, 
<laughs> and you have to sing it for five days straight, no sleeping. <laughs> Melissa, Alice Tierney is one of your latest projects. Of course, you were one of seven winners of a 2020 Opera America Discovery Grant. Yeah. Which is presented to female composers for that, which helps increase gender parity across the opera industry, something we can all get behind. Then that was done at Oberlin in uh 2023 opera columbus as well but like where did that initial idea come from for alice oh boy. Tierney? uh so i'm going to try and tell the cookie cutter version of this story the, the shortest version possible um back in 2014 my husband matt and i uh bought a magic theater from a pedophile and uh discovered during this is going well i can tell yeah yeah no no it's people it's like a mad libs right um we did some construction to the building and underneath the building we discovered two privy pits which are toilet pits from the 18th century filled with artifacts from the 18th and 19th centuries uh and it set me on this path of uh, my sideline is i am a citizen archaeologist um and I got really, really into archaeology. I pretty much divide my time at the moment between music and archaeology. Even though I have no formal qualifications in archaeology, I get invited to archaeology conferences to give talks on the work that we've done on our property, which is wild. Um, and uh, one of the things that I did, as I tell people, I was in grad school at the time at Penn. And uh, if you want to learn a lot about a subject in a really short period of time, Go to grad school for a completely different project, a di completely different subject, um, because as you're procrastinating writing your dissertation, you will go down rabbit holes like you would not believe. Um, so one of the rabbit holes that I went down when I was avoiding writing my dissertation was researching the history of my building. And I discovered that in 1880, a woman was found dead hanging upside down on my back fence. Um, and the police and the newspapers in at the time, the newspaper articles that I found, said that she must have accidentally tried to climb the fence okay, and uh, gotten herself tangled up in her clothes and strangled herself to death. Jeez. <laughs> that's, that's what all the articles said. Um, her name was Alice Tierney. She was a 45-year-old, quote, dissipated woman, unquote, uh, which I take to be, you know, code for sex worker. Um, probably an probably an Irish immigrant, but certainly of the lower classes. Uh, and she had gone out in the middle of the night to get more alcohol because she and some and girlfriends of hers were partying and uh, they'd run out. Um, and the next morning they found her dead hung on this fence. So I read this article and, you know, it was the only documented death on my property. Mm. And I was immediately captivated by like, okay, this wasn't an accidental death, right? Like, like I've, I've, I've worn, you know, period costumes. Y you don't strangle yourself to death in your corset strings. Right. Like that's not a thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, every time there was a funny noise in my house, uh, like, a, you know, some of my the pottery that we excavated would tinkle unexpectedly or something like that. I'd say, aha, that's Alice, the mm. ghost of Alice telling me I have to do something about the injustice that has occurred, that her death was dismissed as this, you know, accident. Um, you know, this was like eight years before Jack the Ripper. So I sort of have a feeling mm. that this was sort of, you know, before 
the idea of someone going around killing sex workers was lurid enough for the press to pay attention. Um, so, you know, when Jackie Goldfinger, um, who's the librettist on this project, when we got this commission, um, she came over to my house and we turned out a hopper of ideas of what are we going to write this opera about? Hmm. And I put this idea in front of her, like something about Alice. And she said, that's it. That's it. That's the one we're doing. Um, but as you well know, and your listeners well know, there are plenty of operas about 19th century sex workers who died tragic deaths. That's a pretty, that's a pretty, you know, up there trope of opera. Um, so we took a different tack. We are telling Alice's story through the eyes of four modern-day archaeologists who are excavating a property that is quite familiar to me, a familiar address in Philadelphia. Um, and as they find objects in their excavation, they start to make assumptions about her. But it turns out their assumptions are totally different from each other because they they prioritize different things. The moral of the story is that whenever you're telling us, whenever you're telling any kind of history or narrative about the past, or really anything, but in this case, I'm talking about history. The story you tell says just as much about the narrator as it does about the actual subject of the story. So in the opera, we create three different versions of Alice, which these four archaeologists have cooked up between them, and they're vastly contrasting. Um, and the idea is, you know, you don't know which correct, which version is correct, um, and they sort of have arguments. It's, it's about how we tell stories and what that says about us. And the production, uh, it was at Oberlin and then Opera Columbus. And and at the moment, like, how how is the project going? What's... Uh, it's been going gangbusters. Okay, so I'm really, really, I feel very fortunate I'm pinching myself over this because, um, you know, any composer will kind of tell you the hardest job is after actually, you know, getting the commission and writing it is getting more performances afterward right. yeah. um, of, of a new work. There's this whole thing where it's like, okay, the new work is done. Will anyone else do it? It's a question mark. Uh, and plenty of, of projects have died on the vine after it, the initial premiere. I'm very lucky. I feel very fortunate. Uh, Boston University did it in October, and then Rutgers University did it in December. Yeah. And uh, coming up soon, Lawrence University in Wisconsin is doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's really ideal for the university environment because it was written originally for a university, for Oberlin. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I I tried to write something that um, that singers who are just at the start of their career can get into. It's meaty, it's got stuff in it, but it's also, you know, at a level where they can sing it. Um, you know, these talented university college uh, level singers can sing it without, you know, damaging their voice or feeling like they don't understand, you know, what's happening um, musically or technically. So yeah, it's go it's going really well. I don't want to jinx myself. So you won't. You won't. <laughs> There's another piece I wanted to ask you about as well. So the Gonzalez Cantata. Uh, oh yeah. This was a, a large scale choral work based on the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings of former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, and I, here we are in an election year. How how do, how does this piece feel to you now? Uh, you know, it's 
it started off, I think, almost in, was it 2009? Yeah. So that's that's when I sort of premiered it. Um, and it's the piece that put me on the map as a yeah. composer, really. I wrote it when I was an undergrad at Westchester University. Um, and I was an older undergrad. I, I, I started college um, for music when I was 24. So I wrote this when I was, you know, 27, 28. Um, and I, I sort of, I had a chip on my shoulder about being a bit older and I knew I had to write something big that sort of knocked it out of the park because I, because I had this chip on my shoulder. Um, and it's funny, you know, I look back at 2007, 2008, um, I arrived in America in 2003 in the middle of the Bush administration. And I, I mean, I think it's, it's not going to be a secret to anyone who, you know, knows my work or visits my website or looks at one tweet of mine, um, what my politics are. But I was really mad. <laughs> I was really angry about the the state of America and American politics. Um, you know, I it, it's very different being in the middle of it as opposed to observing it from afar in a different country. And it was such a circus and it was so blatantly you know, corrupt and seeing, you know, the difference between the way Americans conceive of themselves and the way politics actually operate in this country. So I was so mad. I mean, you know, I, I like protested Sarah Palin and I like, you know, was, was out there yelling about the war in Iraq. And then, you know, we had Obama and it's so funny because 2016 happened and then 2020 and I look back now at those early years of my time in America and I think, oh, wow, girl, you didn't know what anger was. You didn't know how what rage was. Like, you thought you were angry. That's so cute. That's so cute. <laughs> how about this? How about this? Do you actually, we're going to use like the F word, not that one fascism we're careering careening towards fascism and uh you know um yeah so it's it's kind of interesting because uh you look back at the gonzalez cantata um and uh and it's like i can i can feel the anger that i had but it's like nothing compared to sort of the incandescent feelings i've been feeling the last few years yeah uh, I uh, I love that so much of your work has come out of the theater as well. You Barry Ward, Barry Moore, award-nominated theater composer. You've worked at the O'Neill National Puppetry Conference. Like yes, when you wh where is this line for you between opera, music theater, musical theater, plays with songs, theater? How does it all? combine and what's what's that guiding star for you uh, as a okay. composer yeah I mean I should say like uh I started in theater as an actor I was a professional actor for several years mostly Shakespeare um and uh and that's how I got into composition I was acting in a show and uh music director dropped out and they said please write some music by yesterday and right. uh well the Shakespeare play it was in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. I was playing Midsummer, one. Of, yeah. I was playing one of the minor fairies. Um, Excellent. <laughs> Fairy number three. It's cobweb. Fairy Cob number cobweb. three. Cobweb. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's funny because um, for a while I thought I wanted to be an actor, and then I hit composition, and I was like, oh no, this is it. Um, little secret. 
uh, composers get treated better than actors. You know, oh, right. It's it's really true. I I um I if you are a composer out there and you think you're being treated poorly, you should try being an actor or dare I say it, a singer. You know, the most exploited class in opera are the actual performers. Um. Anyway. Put that aside for a second. Um, <laughs> I don't see a line between genres in the concept of, you know, theatre that has sung lines in it. Um, I think a lot of those genre demarcations are very, um, dare I say it, class-based. <laughs> You know, the idea that opera is something that very educated rich people go to and musical theatre is for the masses and it's somehow, I don't know, dumber or, you know, more accessible or something like that. Um, there's an interesting thing that I discovered when I was composing, which is like if you put a drum kit behind anything operatic, suddenly people start telling you that it's Broadway, even <laughs> if it's like not. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> And it's like, why is that? Oh, because the drum kit immediately makes people think of like pop music and rock music. And that is coded as like not opera, like something that like lower class people can listen to. Um, so I really hate those demarcations. But I also talk a lot when I'm talking to my composition students and composers generally about how I genuinely don't understand how composers who aren't actors or haven't got theater chops write for the voice because I discovered very early on in my composition practice that right setting text to music is exactly the same muscle in my brain as preparing a monologue as an actor mm. exactly the same like you have to choose who is your character? What does their voice sound like? What is their accent? You know, what is their background? And then all of the little decisions that you make as you're composing are exactly the same decisions you make as an actor preparing a monologue. You know, do I go up here? Do I go down here? What is the pace? What is the tempo of this monologue? Are there moments when I should pause? to make everybody stop and listen. Mm -hmm. Are there moments when I should go really fast? Should I repeat a word? Should I, you know, sound like I'm giving a speech or should I sound like I'm being extemporaneous? And that's all coded in the music. So in so many ways, composing to me is like putting down in this, you know, weird form of five lines on a page and dots and markings how I want this monologue of the text or the libretto or the poetry to be spoken slash sung um, and presented orally. It's exactly the same. So when I, yeah, I genuinely, I have no idea how composers who don't have that experience approach setting text to music. <laughs> and your experience with theater applies also to like the physical space as well, yeah. right? You've been developing that the Hannah Callow Hill stage. Where is that project now? So yeah, the 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 magic the former magic theater, uh, which you know, um, I'm very weirded out by magic now. Um, <laughs> um, is we are planning on reopening it as a small interdisciplinary performance space, like 50 to 70 seats is sort of the plan. Um, right now, my, uh, uh, you know, we're dealing with some very boring stuff to do with 
um, licenses and land use and building codes and all of these fun things. But if everything goes well, uh, I want to reopen that in 2026, um, in which also coincides with the semi-quincentennial, a fancy Latin term for the 250th anniversary of 1776. Philadelphia's going to have a big party. It's going to be a big deal. It's going to be keyed into history. And from the very beginning of us owning this building, we've been really invested in the history of our neighborhood. As you can tell, obviously, it's like spawned an opera. <laughs> and, um, and the history of the building. Um, and so the plan is recital hall slash concert space in the back and local history museum in the lobby filled with the thousands of artifacts that I personally excavated and washed, you know, 250-year-old composted human poop off of yeah. uh, in my kitchen sink. This would have to be like the first of its kind sort of venue with that combination of archaeology and theater. Uh, probably, yeah. But, you know, um, well, what's the point in doing something that's been done before, you know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm the only composer that I, I, I mean, if someone, if someone's heard of something like this, please drop me a line because I want to see how other people did it. But I think I'm the only composer who has a sideline in archaeology. Melissa, before I let you go, of course, there you are in Philadelphia. At some point, you've crossed paths with Philadelphia fans who are like the absolute scum of the earth, in my opinion. Uh, what's give us give us a story of your intersection as a yeah. theater maker and opera maker and composer with uh, with the the Phila sports lovers. I mean, I I mean, I love Philly. Um, I adore Philly. I even love. I, I know nothing about American football. Uh, because I'm from Australia, I've never been to a game. Sorry, everyone, but because I live in Philadelphia and I consider myself a Philadelphian, go birds! Um, I have to say, we had just shortly moved into Center City, Philadelphia, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Oh, yikes. Uh, a, a few years ago. Um, this is how I found out because I wasn't watching the game, obviously, because I don't know anything about football. But I, I was sitting in my living room in the quiet and suddenly I heard a blood curdling scream like someone was being murdered. And as I listened, I heard another one and another one. It was like the purge. Like it was like, oh, my God, what is happening? And then I sort of went oh, oh God, I think the Eagles just won the Super Bowl. So we opened the window, the entire, and our street is quite quiet normally, the entire street screams just emitting from buildings. And then it, people poured out into the street. I saw complete strangers running up and down the street, hugging each other, screaming, falling on the, on the ground, hugging lampposts, crying. Uh, and then they all sort of at a signal, like, you know, like a mist, it was like something from the X Files, like uh, like a signal went off in their brain, and they all sort of ran uh, west on my street. My street runs east west, and we are east of set of the center of the city, city hall. They all sort of went west, um, and on a uh, on a sort of hunch. I turned on, I opened one of those websites that have a police scanner app on them so that I could listen to the police scanners because I was kind of curious. And I was entertained all evening <laughs> listening to the police screaming on the scanner app, 
Oh my God, they're on the highway. I don't even know how they got here. Please send help. Send horses, send helicopters, send... I can't hold them back. Oh my God, they're breaking into Macy's. It was delightful. I was like, I'm so proud to live in the city. This is amazing. Just chuck that away as the next possible libretta. You never... <laughs> You never know when you're going to need it. Oh, my goodness. Melissa, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for uh, hanging out with us on the show. You are so welcome. And thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Um, yeah, we podcasters got to stick together, I guess. <laughs> notice any immigration notice hearing. Notice, see, notice any immigration notice hearing. Notice, see, notice you. That was the vocal ensemble Cantus performing from Melissa Dunphy's N400 Erasure Songs colon 2 in October 2021. Once <laughs> again, just to say the colon? The, <laughs> I mean, the colon is, is a symbol. You don't have to spell out the word okay. colon, um, but uh, maybe Melissa can come back and let us know if that would be appropriate. Thanks, Thank you once again so much to Melissa Dunphy for joining us here on Opera Box Score. And make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple podcast hit that plus sign yeah you got something to say then yeah all right you can say something this is listener mailbag that's right it's listener mailbag and it's our first pj listener mailbag of the year i believe before we hit the two minute drill we have a report from our dear friend on his week-long adventure at carnegie hall he says each night two hours of master classes and then pastrami at the carnegie diner how could it be better? Hey, listener mailbag. This is PJ with a report from Carnegie Hall. I was with Renee Fleming the entire week. She runs a program called Song Studio, and we heard some remarkable singers, and I just want to list them off for you. There's some names you're going to want to look for in the future. Ruby Dibble, mezzo-soprano. Chai Yoon Yu, countertenor. Edmund Rodriguez, a tenor. Felix Gigli, a baritone. Bass baritone Florian Stutz, Kayakazi Madlala, a soprano from South Africa, and Gabriel Rollinson, a baritone. These are remarkable singers. Out of 300, those eight were chosen, and they were in training the entire week, and we got to see the masterclasses in the evening. The leaders of the masterclasses were also remarkable. Right out of Chicago, Nick Pan, Angel Blue, Renee Fleming and Graham Johnson, each completely different in their approach and each equally wonderful. It is an amazing thing. This is my second year at Song Studio. That's all I got. Thanks, PJ. And we'll look out for those names as future contestants in the Giulio Gari Foundation and maybe even as future friends of the show. Wouldn't it be great to have a master class for how to be an interview guest on a podcast? <laughs> I'm sure Joyce could teach that. Yeah. <laughs> she could add that to her own master classes. Come on, Joyce. I, I think she can do it. It's, a, it's only a little bit more difficult than what she does. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at mailbag at operaboxscore.com or just record your thoughts 
using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxscore.com. Right now, it's the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Met has withdrawn $40 million from its endowment. The fund now sits at $255 million. Peter Gelb acknowledged that making ends meet has been difficult this season, but pointed to increasing audience numbers for in-person shows, as well as live and HD broadcasts, as a hint that its financial woes may be almost over. For arts institutions, we're still in the pandemic, said Gelb, but we see a way out. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. The strike is off at English National Opera, at least for now. We reported last week that orchestra members and the chorus had voted in support of action against management that would have canceled opening night of Paul Reuter's The Handmaid's Tale. However, ENO posted on its website that management has reached a, quote, interim agreement with the unions that will allow the show to go on as planned. In our continuing coverage of the ongoing transformation of the classical recording industry, Pierre-Antoine de Vauc, the classical manager of the Paris-based Naive label, said that today 70% of his company's revenue comes from digital, 90% of which is streaming, and 10% downloads. According to de Vauc, as recently as 2019, there was a 50-50 split between digital and physical media. In the PR tour for her new album, soprano Angela Giorgio has given two long-format interviews to The Guardian and Van magazine. Both of these pieces are filled with jaw-dropping insights, but we'll keep it classy by saying that Giorgio is still a fan of ex-husband Roberto Alagna's singing, and that she stands the three tenors of the new generation, Stefan Pop, Jonathan Tatelman, and Freddy Di Tommaso. UC Avazov also known as Mr. Anna Netrepko, is starting a new management company. Exciting news! I am pleased to announce the launch of Arena Artists Management, an international artist agency based in the heart of Vienna, said the tenor on Instagram. I'm ready to share my experience and knowledge of the music industry with other artists. Insert Anna Netrepko joke here. <laughs> Romanian National Opera is building a brand new opera house. The new facilities will be larger than the old building, but will remain in the city of Iași. Quote, today a huge step was taken to start this large-scale investment, given that the financing has already been secured. That's according to Culture Minister Raluca Turkan. The missing element was the identification and allocation of the site for future construction. It's awards season! The Opera Awards, Germany's Opera Oscars, were handed out Monday night at Dutch National Opera in Amsterdam. The winners in 20 categories selected by a jury of music journalists include friend of the show Hugh Montague Rendell as Best Newcomer, Natalie Stutzmann for Best Conductor, Ermanella Yaho and Michael Spires as Best Female and Male Singers, Bayreuth Baroque as Best Festival, that's one for Weston, oh wait, 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 that's one for me, and <laughs> in an embarrassing result, the Best Opera Company was Dutch National Opera. Funny how that works. Yeah. Conductor and composer Richard Mills has been appointed Officer of the Order of Australia and has also received a quote-unquote post-nominal upgrade, whatever that means, as part of the 2024 Australia Day Honours. My life has been blessed by the beauty of the human voice every day and by inspiration and affection and support of so many people, said Mills. Meanwhile, South Korean composer Unsuk Chin has won the Ernst von Siemens Prize for her contributions to classical music. She'll walk away with a prize of 250,000 euros. And now, an award for an award. The Queen Sonia Singing Competition will receive 10 million Norwegian kroner 
from the Tom Wilhelmsen's Foundation, which benefits medical, humanitarian, and cultural causes. But don't get too excited. That's just $959,000 in U.S. You can't really do anything without at least a cool million. <laughs> Albanian soprano Ermonella Yaho has been named an Opera for Peace ambassador, which helps support the careers of singers around the world. Previous ambassadors include friends of the show Lawrence Brownlee, Ying Fang, and Lydia Yankovskaya. Are we a podcast for peace? <laughs> the Houston Grand Opera has announced the eight finalists for its 2024 Concert of Arias, which will be presented live from the Wortham Theater Center on February 2nd. The finalists will spend this week working with HGO music staff, and then will go on to sing two arias each in the competition for the first place prize of $10,000. Good luck to the finalists, and may one or more of you be a future friend of the show. We'll give you the results next week. In trade news, Boston Lyric Opera has announced that their new artistic director will be mezzo-soprano Nina Yoshida Nelson starting today, if you're listening when this episode drops. I'm thrilled to become BLO's artistic director, said Nelson. In many ways, this is a full circle moment for me, having trained as a violinist and opera singer at Boston University and having performed my first professional opera engagement in New England. Friend of the show Frank Luzzi has announced that this spring he will step down from his role as Opera Philadelphia's VP of Marketing Communications and Digital Strategy to form his own firm, Luzzi Media. It's another tectonic shift for Opera Phila as David Devan wraps up his tenure as the company's general director. Did I do something to break the company, Weston? <laughs> On the disabled list, sorry Matt Cummings, wherever you are, but Sandra Radvanovsky has tested positive for COVID, leading the soprano to pull out of a performance of Aida at Deutsche Oper Berlin. Swedish soprano Christina Nielsen was Radvanovsky's highly capable replacement, but we mean the current Christina Nielsen, not the one dramatized in season two of The Gilded Age. Exit stage right. American soprano Neva Pilgram has died at the age of 85. Pilgram was born on a farm in Minnesota before going on to graduate from Yale. She became a contemporary music specialist, working with such composers as Pierre Boulez, Lucas Foss, and Luciano Berrio. And on this day, January 30th, it was the first performance of Francesco Cavalli's Ciro in 1654 in Venice. Antonio Draghi's opera The Lantern of Diogenes premiered in 1674 in Vienna on this day. Alessandro Scarlatti's L'Erclea premiered in 1700 in Naples. Giovanni Paziello's Sismano nel Mogul premiered in 1773, and in 1862 it was the birth of Prussian-born American conductor Walter Damrosch, and in 1897, the bass baritone Georg Hahn was born in Vienna. He's known for creating the role of the sergeant in Friedenstag by Strauss, and the role of La Roche in Capriccio. In 1917, it was the first performance of the extremely underrated Alexander Zemlinsky opera A Florentine Tragedy at the Hoftheater in Stuttgart. In 1954, it was the birth of countertenor Joachim Kowalski in Poland. And a very happy birthday to baritone Gerald Finley, born on this day in Montreal. And that's your two-minute drill.
Just a little bit of the American aria of choice for baritones, Batter My Heart from John Adams's Dr. Atomic. That was the birthday boy, Gerald Finley, from the studio recording with the BBC, I want to say, Symphony Orchestra, <laughs> conducted by uh, John Adams, the composer. I know you love the, that recording. The amount of times I have sung this aria in the shower <laughs> from when I was a little kid, you know, not, it was just not a, from one of your auditions. No. No, <laughs> uh, sadly, I, I don't have the high notes. I'm a little too deep. Mm, yeah. uh, but one day, I want to be Gerald Finley when I grow up. Mm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I think, the main story this week, which is, of course, the Met once again reaching into its coffers and pulling out some dough. They pulled out, I believe, uh, what, they pulled out like, what, $30 million last season, $33 million? And now they pull, uh, pulled out another $40 million? Uh, and that's a little concerning. Um, I, I think it's interesting that, uh, this is also happening in, in conjunction with, uh, statistics that, that indicate that audience numbers are actually up to almost where they were before the pandemic, but clearly they've taken some hits, um, whether it was all from the pandemic or from lawsuits from Anna Trebko, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we may never know. Um, th and they also are um, cutting down a little bit on their contemporary opera season uh, next year. They're uh, obviously last season they made a big deal of of uh, transitioning to much newer works, much more um, uh, uh, contemporary stuff that seemed to be really resonating with audiences. But they realize that there is still some money to be made on the war horses as well. <laughs> so I think they're they're adjusting their whole strategy a little bit. Yeah, the pendulum um, is swinging back and forth as to what really the strategy is. And exactly. uh, add to that that they're doing 194 performances this year as opposed to 215, which was already reduced last season. Yeah. And if you just look at the idea that they're you know dark in February um, so that one of their major platforms of distribution, the Met Opera radio season has a whole month of archival content, and they're even peppering the whole season with archival content, not just February. So we're only getting like 60% new content uh, in the 25 weeks or whatever it is of the radio broadcast season. Of course, this is important to me as somebody who works in radio, you know? <laughs> yes. It, it is it is interesting to see that this is um, where they're thinking of taking it. Honestly, you know, uh, I, I I'm a little disappointed that they want to bring back some of the war horses, but I do understand that there is some compromise to be made, especially with a conservative house like the Met that has this amount of money on the line. Um, I think that there is a 
I, I, I really get the sense when I read these quotes from Peter Gelb that he's putting kind of a, a brave face on it. But, you know, $40 million is more than the previous withdrawal. And that really <laughs> concerns me. And, you know, you know, inflation is up for everybody. Uh, I think the stock market is going up. So some of those donors might be coming back within the next year or so. But um, it's a, it's still an uncertain time, especially for these really large companies that are kind of slow to change, slow to turn on a dime. And, um, you know, I, I think there I think there's probably some real worry behind the scenes. So we'll see. Yeah, we, uh, we haven't gotten the full season announcement yet, but we do know that the Janine Tesori grounded, which is. I imagine, based on what Ashley said about it, a very expensive show. Yeah, uh, that we're gonna get uh, John Adams's Antony and Cleopatra. I don't know if that's for the coming season, but there's also a plan to do Jake Heggie's Moby Dick, which is a gigantic show with Huge. lots of dudes and Osvaldo Galajov's uh, Anita Mar. Uh, and they're doing piece. they're doing Frau in a Schatten next year, which is another Love gigantic opera. So. Um, yeah, that doesn't sound pretty cheap to me, but, you know. No. Uh, and this is – I think they're thinking maybe a little bit more strategically. I, I feel like the the big thing that they realized was that these contemporary shows were selling a lot of tickets, but for shorter runs. A lot of the big war horses still sell more over more runs, Um Whereas some sort of not quite war horses, but like what, what they did the uh, the the Lowengrin, which had kind of abysmal turnout, as I recall. Like it was the 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 um, the audience was half empty for that one. So you know, I, I think they're really trying to figure out what the magical formula is to make ends meet, and that you know that's it's an important thing to do. When I feel like the Met is sometimes kind of bad at figuring out why why audiences like some things and don't like other things. So, uh, you know, I mean, we'll see what happens, you know, and all we're talking about statistics. I want to talk a little about these uh, stats from the naive label here. Mm -hmm. Um, Famous for their uh, Vivaldi series. Yes. Yes. They're, uh, or are they the ones where they just have like the kind of the the pictures of the models? Yeah. It's like the the complete model shoot. Yeah. 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 Uh, They do a lot of good early music stuff. Um, Mm Yeah, this this was really interesting to me um, that as recently as 2019, they had kind of 50-50 sales in digital and physical media, and now uh, digital is overwhelmingly winning just a few years later. And and famously, you know, classical music has been the big holdout in terms of uh, CDs. You know, um, even today, I think there are more classical music people buying CDs than any other genre, but uh, I am almost wondering if this, if the entry of Apple classical onto the scene has been kind of the tipping point for a lot of people, you know, uh, because there, there have been classical music focused streaming services prior to Apple classical. Like Tidal, which nobody ever got on board with, you know. I, I, exactly. They're all like very Adag- small. Was it Adagio? Was that the other one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're all very small, very... Uh, very um, uh, startup-y kind of apps. And, you know, a lot of them had really good stuff uh, going for them. But I think the lesson from this is that you are very much confined by the company that is distributing your stuff. You know, your average mainstream listener 
of really any piece of music is going to be kind of at the whims of whatever is biggest and uh, doing the most advertising at any one time. Um, now, that being said, I can't say for certain if Apple Classical is the reason for this massive shift at Naive specifically. I would suspect it's a part of it. But um, I don't know. It's 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 very interesting, especially with Naive especially. They, they have uh, – they've always had, I think, a little bit – um, less robust, uh, you know, program notes and stuff in uh, in their in their physical CDs compared to a lot of larger labels. So maybe that's a part of it. I would love to see statistics. Get my hand on uh, grubby little hands on all the statistics for classical music album sales uh, to really see the overall pattern. But um, I, I would suspect we're going to see more news like this in the near future. Yeah, I mean, I think naive is like the canary in the coal mine um, to say that. Just ten percent of what people are, you know, accessing is a purchase. The rest is streaming. Uh, that I think that bodes badly for the future of artists getting paid <laughs> to yeah. do, yeah. uh, to make these recordings. And the less money there is to to make these recordings, uh, the more it's going to be just about passion projects and not getting, you know, standard repertoire by. Um, you know, bankable artists uh, on record. I mean, you look at artists like um, uh, Arya Nusban Khan, for example. You right. know, like everybody agrees, like he's like he's the poop right now. But you can only find him on like really boutiquey labels doing very niche repertoire, and not you know where is his you know Bach album? Where is his you know Vivaldi Nisi Dominus album? You know. We have enough of those. Granted, we have Andreas Show, we have you know Tim Mead doing that music, and but I feel like I want to preserve his artistry, and that's how we get those artists. You know how we how they yeah. even are able to market themselves into different markets uh, is through those major label recordings. You know, so and, uh, not, um, not to sound like a broken record or a broken digital music track in this case. Uh, <laughs> I always bring this up whenever uh, whenever we talk about this transition to digital music, but I, I had a really sort of vivid example of this earlier this week where I recently upgraded my phone and I had to jump through all these hoops to get every all the music mm -hmm. that wasn't Apple Classical onto my phone over the course of several days trying yeah. to figure out how to, how to even do it, you know? And um, it's really... It's really uh, not ideal. We'll move on to uh, the next story, which is actually a PR blitz from Angela Georgiou. Uh, we're talking about two articles that are large interview, large format interviews, one from Van Magazine and one from The Guardian. I know there were more than just that, but uh, this is she i don't know where she found all the time to like say all this stuff and all these stories that she wants to get out there like the story of her meeting Meryl Streep and apparently Meryl Streep like fell to her knees and said in my next life i want to be like you like really <laughs> Meryl Streep said that <laughs> uh there's also uh you know stories about her ex-husband um there's stories about the repertoire that she still feels like she wants to sing that she hasn't had a chance to, like Monteverdi and uh, Vivaldi. Really? A Baroque album from Angela Gheorghe? That would be um, 
interesting. Maybe on the naive label, maybe she'll do one of those um, covers where like her <laughs> hair is just like all in her face. I'd be into it. Lots of pomade in it. Anyway, uh, I actually am a fan of Angie Gurgu. I I still think that her Traviata with Schulte from Covent Garden that like was her big coming out. Uh, I still think that that's a, an amazing performance, and she does you know bring her extraness to everything she does. <laughs> and sometimes it's not appropriate, but sometimes it's like, yeah, I want that to be extra. So. Well, that's what you want. You know, like uh, we we live in a mostly post-diva age and sometimes yeah. you just want a little bit of drama, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of drama, let's talk about Good Call, Bad Call. Good Call, Bad Call on Opera Box Score. Good Call, Bad Call, Dramatic Calls, all sorts of calls here on Opera Box Score. Let's start with the only other person in the room with me, Oliver Camacho. <laughs> Well, since we're a limited team, I'm going to use up everybody else's good calls. One, <laughs> uh, a story that we didn't talk that much about, but uh, Nina Yoshida Nelson uh, becoming BLO's uh, next general director. That's great. Uh, for those of you who are not um, online too much, Nina Yoshida Nelson also is the administrator of the Opera, Asian Opera Alliance on Facebook. It's a Facebook group, so she does a lot of advocacy work for... Asians in opera and just the reaction I saw to her appointment uh, online from you know my network of opera creators everybody is really really happy about this and you know she was just in Chicago singing in um, Santa becoming Santa Claus is that what it was called the, oh yes yeah. yes that was my yeah. operatic debut another good call for the Met HD of Carmen uh, I didn't know. I mean, first of all, congratulations to friend of the show, Brianna Hunter. Amazing. Uh, but I did not know the voice of Aigul Akhmetchina. Um, and so this is my first experience with her. And uh, wow, uh, she's 27. And uh, the voice is so easy. Like the technique is very good. And uh, she's still at that age where she can run around the stage jumping and literally like hanging from... Uh, from the side of a truck <laughs> while singing the <laughs> the uh, Chanson Bohème in Act 2. Uh, it was all very impressive. And she has a great personality. The interview with Matthew Polanzani and the intermission feature, she was delight. So I'm looking forward to seeing what else she has to give. I, I'm i going to uh, predict that she transitions to um, Soprano Falcone or Dramatic Soprano because the top is just too easy. And uh, my last good call is for the exhibit in the lobby of Lyric Opera of Chicago called Concrete Rose, mm. which is a collection of photographs of black men photo in Chicago during the 80s, uh, a lot of the photographs during the AIDS epidemic. Uh, that exhibit is very homoerotic and is uh, curated by a uh, very flamboyant uh creator, uh, art, artistic creator or artistic curator uh, named Victor Lee Givens. And the photographer is an icon in Chicago art uh, named Patrick McCoy. Uh, everything very gay. And uh, I just have to say that as somebody who's been going to the opera since I was 15 and going to the Civic Opera House, the home of Lyric Opera of Chicago, and, you know, trying to find myself uh, in the stories on the stage and trying to, I, you know, 
find my fellow gays in the audience or on the stage. Like that was always like work that I did uh, discreetly to try to feel like I belong there. But now it's so explicit and, you know, gay people are welcome. Uh, gay black people are welcome. Gay black stories on the stage are welcome. Mm -hmm. And that represents a cultural shift. And so it felt really great to be part of the um, opening night of Champion, which was on Saturday. And I saw you there. Yeah, I was there. I was sitting in the back. Um, you know, I've always had representation in the form of tall, tall white guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fosner, so, you know, Fosalt, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I was there at that performance of Champion. And, you know, it was great seeing the energy of the crowd. I heard multiple people talking afterwards who had never seen an opera before, talking excitedly about it. And it was really great to see um, such a, a story that, like you said, you know, you would not have seen at the Lyric even, you know, five years ago or much less 10, 20 years ago. Um, and uh, uh, it's I, I think it's really worth checking out. I really enjoyed it. But I have another call on top of that. And it's not necessarily a good call or a bad call. But it's a drama call. And if you know me, you know uh, that I love some Bayreuth drama. Uh, and uh, basically, the thing about the Wagner family and their ownership of the festival is that they all kind of hate each other. Uh, and I just, you know, every time uh, something in the, in the news comes up about it, I'm like, oh, yes, I get my popcorn. I start munching. And um, and this time, because the Bayreuth Festival is seeing slowing ticket sales for the first time in a very, very long time. And uh, the Society of Friends of Bayreuth is getting a little bit antsy about Katarina Wagner. There were some choice uh, catty sentences thrown out in a, mag a town and country magazine. We'll post a link to that on our website. Uh, and I just want to read this one quote from the chair of the Friends of Bayreuth in reference to Katarina Wagner, who's currently running the festival. Uh, and he says, the name Wagner is great, but it isn't the only criterion for leading the festival. Everyone is replaceable if necessary. Youch! That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, get your voice heard, and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. That's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS using the Support the Team tab. Your announcer is Norm Waddell, your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is me. For co-host George Cedarquist and guest Melissa Dunphy, and our field reporter, of course, PJ Ewing. I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you fall on your knees before Angela Georgiou. We're back with an all-new show next week when countertenor Reginald Mobley takes a free throw on the songs of Florence Price. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more withdrawals from the Met Endowment. Join us. <laughs>